Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 25. We're back in Genesis now after our time of Easter, and we pick back up in chapter 25 of Genesis and verse 1. Genesis 25 and verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan are Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we approach it now, we ask that these would not just be mere words that come into our ears and go back out, but that your word, as you have promised, would not return void. Use your word and make it effective. Instruct us and teach us and help us and deepen our love for you that we would grow in faith in the knowledge of Christ. Lord, only you can do this. And so we ask you this morning, do this work in our hearts. According to your will, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this past week was April 15th and this year it felt a little bit different uh, because of the date, the extension for our taxes has been moved. But normally, April 15th is kind of a day of dread for many of us, the day that our taxes are due. And you know the saying that goes about death and taxes, they're supposedly the only two things that you can't avoid in this life. And while people have certainly tried to avoid both, there's only one that people have been successful in avoiding, and that, of course, would be taxes. Death is simply a reality of this life. And it's a subject that we, in our culture, really don't talk about. Death is not something that we're terribly comfortable talking about. 
We have a number of euphemisms for death that make it a little easier to refer to someone who has passed away or someone who has moved on or someone who is no longer with us. But as Christians, we don't have to fear death. We don't need to fear death. But there's another subject that even as Christians that we don't like to talk to maybe as much as we don't like to talk about death, and that is the subject of growing old. Uh, We don't mind talking about it if we're complaining about our aches and our pains. We do really well at that. But just in terms of the fact that it's inevitable, that we are all growing old, as certain as death is for every one of us, every one of us is growing old. All of us are a day older today than we were yesterday. And so aging is something that is inevitable. It's something that we ought to think about, that our days are numbered that they're limited. So both in terms of the, the quantity, but also in terms of the quality and how we live our lives and how we make our lives count, we ought to talk about the aging process. And today's text gives us that opportunity because in it we see the end of Abraham's life, the fact that he has, in a sense, aged well. It was actually a promise that God gave to Abraham that he would grow to an old age, and he did. We see the death of Abraham. We also see the death of Ishmael. And so it's an opportunity for us to talk about both death and aging. The phrase, a good old age, is something that is both timeless and relative. Timeless in the sense it's in this text. It goes back a long way. It was used to describe Abraham. But it's relative in the sense of what does it mean? Well, it probably means different things to different people. What is a good old age? Well, if we think of the age component, that number would differ across history. It would differ across cultures as far as what that number should be. But in terms of the descriptor good, there would be a lot of things that we would all agree upon that would describe a good old age. All of us, I think, would say that we want as little pain and suffering as possible in our older years. We would want all of our needs to be met, particularly our physical needs. We wouldn't want to have to worry about things. We don't want to be lonely in our old age. We don't want demands, or at least not too many demands. We'd prefer leisure to kind of do things the way we want to do them. And I think we would all prefer a sense of effortless living, the idea that we would coast to the finish line to kind of put it on cruise control and just kind of ride out those last few years. But is that, is that really the goal? I think it's the world's goal. I'm not sure that as Christians that that ought to be our goal. I'm not saying that none of those things aren't to be factored in or considered or thought about, but in the sense that we put the cruise control on and we don't consider making our latter years count, I think that that's a little short-sighted, particularly when we look at Scripture. As we consider Abraham's life, I think we could definitely say no. Because as we look to the, the, we've seen this verse so many times, we've come to it from Hebrews 11, where it says Abraham had his eyes fixed on a city that wasn't of this world, its foundations and builder is God. That Abraham had his eyes of faith fixed on a world to come, a world beyond death, 
that he was living for. We see early in his life, of course, he was living for this world. He tried to take matters into his own hands. He tried to achieve the promise on his own. He took Hagar. He, uh, you know, lied about Sarah. We see a number of mistakes that he made along the way. But ultimately, Abraham grew and grew in his faith until his eyes were fixed, not on the promises, but on the promise giver. When we think of all of the things that we are kind of struggling with right now. I mean, there are things that we always think about, but the current pandemic has us especially mindful of them. These are things that are, uh, well, they're, they're good and they're necessary. We think of our wellness and our health. That's something everyone's thinking about right now. We all want to stay healthy. We're all trying to stay well. And that's good and important. We're all thinking about supplies. We want to make sure that we have what we need. Again, no problem. That's a good thing. Uh, and we're, we're probably all considering financial stability. And what I mean by that is we're thinking about, I not only need the supply for today, but I'm very curious that I have tomorrow taken, taken care of as well. And so all of those things are important. They're, they're not sinful to think about those things. In many ways, we would consider them wise. But there is something, there is an event that we all face. You know what that event is now that makes all of those things moot. Our wellness, our supply level, and our financial stability, none of those things matter when we die. We don't take any of those things with us. We don't possess any of those things anymore when we come to the moment of death. Now, for the unbeliever, that's terrifying because that's all the unbeliever has to hold on to. And so many people who reject God do everything they can to hold on to wellness, to hold on to their supplies, what they possess, and to hold on or try and possess some kind of financial stability. And they work and work and work. And guess what? In that moment of death, all of those things for them are gone. They no longer possess them. But for the believer, our mindset should be different. You see... In the moment of death, we exit this corruptible body and this world that is a world of corruption, the world that's decaying, that's breaking down, that's coming to an end, coming to a halt. We exit this. We leave it. And so death for us is an escape. And I don't mean that in, in, in some kind of uh, a demented way. I mean that in a very positive way, that we escape corruption, that death is the exit from the corruptible world into the incorruptible world, that is eternity. It's freedom, it's release, it's redemption, it's consummation. Everything that our faith has prepared us for is realized in death. Now, we normally don't talk like that because death is something um, that, we, uh, that we typically mourn and that we're saddened by or that we fear or that we want to push back on, but we don't have to fear it. And it doesn't mean we have to be flippant about our lives. We shouldn't be. Our lives have been entrusted to us. God has given us our lives. He's numbered our days. They're not to be taken for granted. But whenever that number ends, whatever time that is, we don't have to fear. And so when it comes to thinking about financial security, our supplies, our wellness, and our health, while we can be mindful and, and, and careful with those things, we don't make those things the object of our hope. So I don't think the answer is to throw our hands up in the air and say, who cares? I'm ready to die. 
Uh, as Christians, as long as the Lord has given us breath, we have purpose. Hear me when I say that. As long as the Lord gives you breath, your life has purpose. You may struggle at times to know what that purpose is and what it looks like. But trust me, God has got you here for a reason and there is purpose. But at the same time, I think we need to keep our mortality, the fact that we all have a limited number of days and years, we need to keep that in check. We need to be mindful of that. So we don't fear death, but we uh, at the same time should live wisely in terms of how we steward our life and the things that God's given us. We can even enjoy the things that he's given us, but we don't ever get to the point that we hold on to them so tightly that we're afraid to lose them. What I'm, what I'm describing in all of this can be summed up in one word, contentment. And when we say the word contentment, it's something that I think our society really has lost a grasp on uh, most. I think if you were describing Western society, Western culture in today's uh, time frame, that contentment would be uh, could not only would not be a descriptor of our culture and time, but would be kind of the uh, uh, the opposite of our culture and time. That we're anything but content. We're we're insatiated. We want more. We are trying. We're consumers, and we're trying to always get more as a culture. And so contentment is something that is, um, it, it's, it's especially hard for us because we frankly don't see a lot of good examples of it. It's not esteemed in our culture. But even more than just contentment by definition, biblical contentment, and what I mean by that is contentment that is rooted in Christ, is something that we are called for. And I'm sure that when you hear that word, you think of Paul's writing on contentment in Philippians 4. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, Paul wasn't talking about winning a football game. Uh, I say that because, unfortunately, that last verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is most commonly used in our culture about sporting events. But as you can see, the context has nothing to do with that. In fact, you know what Paul's situation was when he wrote this? He was in prison. He was in confinement. And I don't need to go into details about what a Roman prison was like in this day, but it wasn't pleasant. And yet here he is talking and writing as an imprisoned man about contentment, that he has learned to be content. The contentment is rooted in satisfaction. Okay, so contentment, being content with what I have, isn't simply this passive, I don't want anymore, but it's more than that. It is, I don't want anymore because I am already satisfied. I have been satisfied in Christ. It is seeing the all-satisfying Christ for all that he is, and knowing and being content based on that. I think we can describe Abraham's life in this way, at least certainly at the end. Now, we've talked about his life earlier. We've seen it. We've walked with him uh, in, the, in the recorded account in Genesis through his life, and we've seen that he's not always been content. But Abraham, if you think about at the end of his life, he had received the promises of God, and he had learned to trust God completely, of course, not without mistakes along the way, but to the point that after receiving the long-awaited promise of the son, the son of promise, Isaac, 
that He was then. And then after receiving Him, being able to raise Him and enjoy Him and go through all those wonderful years of raising a young boy into a young man, only to be called on by God to, to lead Him up Mount Moriah and to lay Him on the altar. And yet, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed and God provided. And a ram was sacrificed instead. But Abraham learned to find contentment, not in the promise itself, not in the fruit of the promise, but in the one who gave the promise. And isn't that what God is continually doing in our own lives, where He is He's calling us to lay, lay aside what are our default modes. Our default modes are we either want to possess, we want the fruit of the promise, uh, and God's saying, no, you, you, you want me, come after me. I'm a person. He wants relationship, not the fruit of the promise. Uh, the other thing that we're continually called away from is our own self-righteousness, right? Our default mode is to go into performance that we're trying to earn and we're trying to uh, gain, gain merit before God. And God says to that as well, no, no, it doesn't get you anywhere. Your, your good works are as filthy rags before me. Trust in my son alone, who has accomplished all of that. And so all of the things that are our default, that we, that we go back to again and again and again, God is saying, let go of those things and find your contentment in me alone. You think of Abraham, he was promised land, he never got it. I mean, he got that small piece, that little field with the cave in it, but in the grand scheme of things, that's minuscule from what was promised and what was later delivered in that promise. He didn't see children as many as the, sea, the, the sands on the shore or the stars in the sky. He only saw the beginning of it. And he certainly didn't see how all the nations of the world would be blessed. But instead, he kept trusting the one who gave him those promises. And that he, he, he learned that in trusting the one who gives the promises, the source of the promise, the promise giver, that in him and in him alone is found True contentment. And so I think contentment is a big part of what it means to come to a good old age. I truly do. I think that if it's not top on the list, it's near the top. The contentment is so important for us. We've all known people who have arrived in those golden years and not finished well. People that were racked by guilt or bitterness or uh, envy or a comparison, constant comparison or um, judging or, or all of these things. I mean, it's where we get phrases, you know, grumpy old man or uh, those kinds of characteristics that we look at. And it makes for good comedy, but none of us, none of us want to be that. And, and, and what I, I, I sense in all of those situations that we have the potential to... Um, to lack in those contexts is contentment. And so this is a call for all of us. Now, I know that for me, as a, compared to many of you who are part of Christ the King, I'm, I'm, I'm a young, young guy. What, what business do I have to say about this? But um, I, I'm hoping that you will hear this as coming from the Lord as we look at passages like Philippians, as we look at Abraham's whole life, that this isn't Seth's idea or, or Seth's words, but that you hear from God's word that he calls us all to contentment. So my struggle with contentment is as necessary. I mean, I, I need to be content as much as anybody. It's not just when we get to the end of our days that we need to be content. 
It is a, it's a pattern that needs to develop in us through that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And so consider contentment then as we look at this passage that's before us today. Now, the, what we see in the passage, and I'm going to look at it rather than straight through. I'm just going to look at it in two parts. And the first part are the, the first and last section. So we see Abraham's final years recorded in verses 7 to 11, uh, the, the last days in his burial. We'll look at that second. Uh, but first, I want to look at these two genealogies that are listed. The, the first one in verses 1 to 6 and the second in verses 12 to 18. Now, we look at genealogies and they're, they're, they're hard because, uh, you know, why are they here? And those names, they're so hard to pronounce. And why, why does God include them in his word? Well, these genealogies are intentional. And if you've been with us through the study, you anticipate this because we have seen there is a pattern in Genesis. We saw this from the very beginning. Uh, when we got to Genesis 5, and then we saw it again in Genesis 10 and 11. We see it here uh, in Genesis 25. We're going to see it again, uh, where the writer, the narrator, Moses, as he wrote Genesis, used genealogies to bookend uh, kind of the, the epics or the, the stories. So the story of Adam uh, begins and ends, well, it begins doesn't begin with a genealogy unless you want to consider creation uh, that, but it ends with a genealogy as you move from him uh, to uh, Noah and then from Noah really through Shem uh, to Abram. We see that other genealogy. And so this is intentional. It is a pattern that the writer is using to show us that this is the end of the story of Abraham. Abraham's story ends here. We're going to pick up next and we're going to move through the story in the life of Isaac. And then we're going to go to Jacob, and then we're going to get to Joseph. And that's how Genesis is laid out. So that's one of the reasons that gene these genealogies are here. The genealogies also demonstrate the lineage that comes from Abraham, that there is an unfolding promise so that we can take the lineage and we can look back and see that the promise unfolded according to God's plan. There wasn't happenstance. There wasn't chance. This was God's plan unfolding. If you think of Genesis 15 and verse 5, and he brought him outside, he, meaning God, he brought Abraham outside, or Abram at this time, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so we see the unfolding plan of God through the genealogies. And then the third thing that we see is that in this unfolding plan is a thread. And it's that scarlet thread that runs from Genesis all the way through the Gospels to Revelation, that scarlet thread that promises the one who would come and redeem God's people. And that one, of course, is Christ. And he not only redeems his people, the thread goes on, doesn't it? The thread's running right now through history, and the thread continues to when he returns. And, uh, and we, we, we see the, the, the completed work that he has begun, and we long for that day. So it's not just random that we see these genealogies listed here in Genesis 25. Now, the two genealogies are both descendants of Abraham, one through Keturah and one through Hagar. So neither of these are the lines of promise. We know the line of promise came through Sarah. And, uh, and, and the birth of Isaac. And this, again, is a pattern that we're familiar with that um, in, you know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Of course, Cain kills Abel, and so God replaces Abel with the third son, Seth. But it's through that line 
comes the promise, not through Cain, but through Seth. And then through Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, through Shem comes the promise. Uh, now we see it coming through uh, Abram, uh, through Isaac, uh, and Jacob, and so forth, not Esau. And so we see this pattern that the promise is through a specific line. And of course, we turn around from the Gospels and we trace that line backwards from, uh, to the, from the birth of Jesus backwards. We realize that's what this is leading to. But God still includes these genealogies of the unpromised line, that they still matter in his story. So the result of this relationship with Keturah, and we don't know if Abram or Abraham took Keturah as a wife before or after Sarah died. Uh, there are arguments that are strong for both. The normal reading of the text would cause us to think it was after Sarah died, and that's the way we would read it. Uh, but there's arguments for that this happened earlier. Uh, but it, that is, it, we're not here to, de, to uh, debate that today. The result of the relationship with these six sons. And some of them, we'll see those names appear later in Scripture. And we'll look at that a little bit later in our text today. That these were the sons who, you notice he sent them away, sent them to the east. So these are the sons that became uh, those who would occupy their Arabian Peninsula and those surrounding areas. We also notice in the text that Abraham gives these sons gifts. He doesn't give them the inheritance. In fact, at verse 5, we're told that he left everything to Isaac. So these were mere tokens, uh, but, but the inheritance, the everything of worth goes to Isaac. The line that comes through Hagar is, of course, through Ishmael. And from him, we see 12 sons that come. And those sons are listed in verses 12 and following. In verse 16, they're referred to as princes, 12 princes, according to their tribes. Now, even though Ishmael is not the son of the promise, the blessings that were uh, promised by God to Abraham uh, of which included this, that uh, there would be uh, children uh, numbering, the descendants numbering uh, more than the, the, the sands of the sea shore or the uh, stars in the sky, that Ishmael's benefiting from that promise. But you may wonder, why, why is this necessary to, including, uh, to include rather the, the non-promise line? Well, one thing that becomes clear is that if the promise extends in this way, through the line that is not the line of promise, and it's fulfilled in this way, then how much more will God deliver on the promise through the one who would lead to the seed or to the Redeemer? And even more than just the numbers, even more than just the fact that we can count up and see how many uh, these descendants would be, there is a sense of, uh, there's, a, there's some little gospel glimmering going on here as well. Uh, yeah, these are the sons. They're not in the line of promise. They're sent away, right? They're sent away from the promised land. So in a sense, they, we, we wouldn't call it cut off, but there's this removal. They're not, they're, they're not included in the promised land. And we could almost see them, again, it's not cut off. It's not excommunication, but the, the body of faith that was comprised in Abraham's family, they're removed from this as well at this point in history. And so what happens when we look forward? Well, if you listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6, but while I read it, I invite you to look there in uh, the first few verses of, of Genesis 25 and see if you recognize some of these names. Isaiah 60 verse 6, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. 
All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. You remember, recognize those names. Those are the sons of Keturah. And here we see that they are bringing the praises of the Lord back to the Lord to beautify His beautiful house. What is that describing? Well, it's describing what we see in our own time. We're we're seeing the salvation of the descendants of Abraham that weren't in the line of promise. Now, we know that on this side of the cross, that those of us who are by faith in Christ, that we are called Abraham's offspring. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.29. If you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we who were not of the line are also included in the promise. But these are the ones who, in a sense, were They were rejected. They were removed. They were sent away from the land. And yet their descendants are coming back. What is this describing? Well, right here in the middle of these genealogies, we get, if we look ahead to Isaiah, and then we recognize what has happened now on this side of the cross, we see that God keeps all of his promises, that by bringing back into his family those who he has sent away, and so these are the people groups uh, that uh, are, are some, still some of the most difficult to reach, some of the hardest to reach, some of the most unreached people groups. And yet we do see people coming out of these groups responding to the gospel. And that's what, when we fast forward all the way to Revelation, that we actually see that people from all nations, tribes, and tongues will come before Christ in worship. And so right here in these boring genealogies, we get hints at that, that God's work is, is uh, it's not finished yet in the sense that, I mean, Christ's work is finished, but in his gathering in, he's not done. And that, that picture that we get in Revelation is this beautiful, finished work where he brings into his possession, into his family, people from all nations tribes and tongues. So genealogies can encourage us, can help us, can be beneficial. Now I want us to to, to finally look at verses 7 to 11. This is the description of Abraham's uh, final years and his death. We see that uh, he dies 100 years after entering the promised land. He was 75 when he came in. And that his death, as far as death can be, is, is pleasant, right? It's described that he died in a good old age in verse 8, an old man and full of years, and he was, he was gathered to his people. So what is a good old age? Again, we've talked about that initially, that uh, it's, uh, while it's a timeless descriptive, it's somewhat relative in terms of how we would consider good. I don't think that it's as much about the, the quantity, the number of years, as it is about the good, the quality of the years. So, you know, if we picked an age, if you said 100, and many people would rebuff that and say, I don't want to live that long. Uh, but whatever that age, whatever that number was, there would be some disagreement on that. But if we said, uh, let's talk about the good, let's talk about the quality again, we would have a lot of agreement. We've talked about that some already, but some other things that we might consider to be good older years, uh, would uh, things that we would all agree upon, would be that, uh, that you might retain all of your faculties. Like that's, that's something I think about a lot, that, that uh, as I uh, witness other people who have struggled in that, uh, that that would be a very difficult thing to walk through. So that would be something that we would say would be good. Uh, we wouldn't want to be completely alone. 
Uh, there might be times where we need a little alone time, but we don't want to be lonely uh, in our older years. We would want our financial needs met. We would maybe want some of our wants met as well, some of the things that we've desired. We wouldn't want to be uh, weighted down. Again, we talked about this a little bit, but with pessimism toward our current day or with uh, regret or bitterness about the past. And uh, we know that that's a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. But as we grow older, if we don't root those things out, those things can go very deeply and strangle us out. We would want to retain our dignity uh, in our old age. So in terms of, we could add to that list, but in terms of the good part, uh, and this is what I'm trying to emphasize, that what, what would matter in our aging is that it's the quality. That's what we want. We want the good, not so much the quantity, although quantity certainly would matter. Um, we, we would put the emphasis on the quality. It says that he was an old man and full of his years, or full of years, rather. And this could be understood as either rep- uh, repetitious to, to add emphasis or expansion. I think it's a little bit of expansion uh, because what's actually written in the Hebrew is just the word full, an old man and full that he is described simply as full. That's where the emphasis is. The translators later added the words of years because in the context that certainly fits and it helps us understand it. But the emphasis is on a full life. So again, quality, not necessarily quantity. I mean, if any of us were asked uh, if we wanted to live a full life, I think everybody would agree that that would be desirous as opposed to an empty life. I mean, that's something that would be desired. But... Uh, a full life certainly means different things, again, to different people. And we don't have time to unpack all that. We've talked about this a little bit. But what I'm trying to draw us back to by bringing this back in the discussion is this whole idea of contentment. That contentment is, I, I, I really sense that it's, it's kind of a, the, the linchpin. The, the, it, it's, everything's hinged on this idea of contentment. And again, This isn't just the world's understanding of contentment. I'm talking about biblical contentment that's rooted in faith in Christ. So don't misunderstand this idea as just being a matter of the will. Like if we just mind over matter it and say, I will be content, I will be content, that somehow that's contentment. That's not. I mean, we know that in our heart of hearts. The contentment is something that we experience. Uh, We could use the word satisfaction to describe it. Um, but we would, we would all agree that saying we're satisfied is different from actually being satisfied. And here, what I want us to understand is we can truly be satisfied. We might all find it easy to be satisfied when we have everything we want, but what about when we lack? What about when there's pain? What about when there is suffering? Um, I can't help but think of Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know her story, uh, just sidebar, if you have Amazon Prime, I uh, discovered her, her movie is on there. You may have to dig around for it. Uh, but it's a, it still holds up. It was made back in the 70s, but the movie still holds up in telling her life story. She was paralyzed in a diving accident, and she has lived all of these years as a... Uh, 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 and, and she's been paralyzed from this accident lived in a wheelchair. And she talks openly about suffering, about pain, about chronic pain, that she has lived with chronic pain all these years. And yet there is this joy and a satisfaction in Jesus 
that she, she just exudes. If you ever get a chance to hear her speak, I encourage you to seek that out. So what we see in the example of Johnny, or what we see in the example of Abraham, or what we're talking about with this whole idea of contentment, is that our satisfaction has to be rooted in something outside of ourselves. It has to be rooted, contentment has to be rooted in, in something that's transcendent, something that's beyond us. Because we're fickle, we change, uh, we, we can't hold ourselves content. It's not a matter of the will. So it has to be outside of us. And for it to be lasting contentment, it has to be something that's eternal, something that's unchanging. And there's nothing in this world that are either of those things. And so the argument then is that our, we were made to only be able to find our contentment in God. We were made to know Him. We were made to be found in Him, to be known by Him, the ultimate intimacy, to both know Him and be known by Him. That's what we were made for. And so this isn't a matter of just saying, I will be satisfied in Christ. I will be satisfied in Christ over and over again until you try and convince yourself. It's actually seeing Jesus as the all-satisfying one because of who He is, His loveliness, His beauty, the work of redemption and the display of His love and grace toward us. That's where our satisfaction has to be rooted. That's what Paul gets at when he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is what we need to be able to say. I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when you and I find true and deep and lasting satisfaction in Jesus, then the external situation doesn't detract from our contentment. It doesn't mean that we don't... I mean, you listen to Johnny uh, Erickson Tata. She openly talks about suffering. She openly talks about struggles. It isn't that the struggles aren't there. It's not that the pain's not there. But that her contentment, because it's rooted in Christ, because of who He is and what He's done, because He is unchanging, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that her contentment is able to carry her through. Because it's not based in her circumstances. It's not based on herself. It's based in the One who holds all things in His hands, who rules over all things, whose love knows no end. And so we can say, I'm content, regardless of whether I have everything I want or not because I'm satisfied in Jesus. Now, Abraham may not have known the name Jesus, but he knew Jesus. He knew Him as Yahweh. He knew God, and his faith was credited as righteousness. He was content in the all-satisfying God. The third descriptor is that Abraham was gathered to his people. And this is a phrase, a descriptor that we only see used in the Pentateuch. Uh, so the first five books of the Bible, these were all written by Moses. And this phrase, gathered to his people, is used a number of times to uh, describe the death of one. And while some uh, have suggested that it just means that they were buried with their family, we know that that's, that doesn't hold up because Abraham, among others, wasn't buried with his family. He wasn't taken back to Ur. He was buried with uh, Sarah right in uh, the promised land in Canaan. And so what this descriptor captures is really the idea of life after death. Now, when we read Hebrews 11 that Abraham had his eyes fixed on a city whose foundations and builders God, 
that he understood that there was life beyond this world and that by faith in God that he and his family, his people, uh, would be not only gathered to God, but they would be gathered together. And so these descriptors that we see of Abraham's death, a good old age, a man full of years, gathered to his people, is exactly what God had promised to Abraham. Back in Genesis fifteen fifteen, we saw him say, God say to Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And Abraham received that promise. A few more details. Isaac and Ishmael came together, laid aside their differences to bury their father with Sarah in the cave that he had purchased to bury her as a grave. Uh, And then in verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So here is where we see the transference of the mantle, that the blessing is continuing. It's been on Abraham, now it's on Isaac, and now the story will be told in his generation. Well, death, again, is not something that we enjoy talking about, something that we like to talk about, but it is something that we all face. And I want to be clear that when we talk about death and and how unbelievers face it or believers face it, we can talk about the fact that as believers, we don't have to fear death. That's true. But don't misunderstand that, that we don't mourn the death of those we love. We do. Because death is, is loss. It's separation. And for those of us who remain behind, uh, it is a real loss. And so there's real sadness and real mourning. So don't ever think that as Christians we uh, are supposed to stuff our feelings and not mourn and not be sad over the loss of a loved one. We do mourn, but we don't mourn as those without hope. And that's the difference. Um, Scripture calls us, though, as we think about death, as we think about the life and the days that we've been given, Scripture calls us to consider our days, to count our days, to make our days matter. Psalm 139.16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before we were ever born, God had numbered our days. Psalm 90 verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so there's wisdom found in counting our days, counting the moments God has given us. Psalm 39, 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Keeping in mind our mortality, recognizing that this life isn't forever and this life isn't certainly what matters the most. Abraham saw the promises from afar and he trusted God. And we, in the same sense, also see the promises from afar. We're told that we look through a glass dimly, that we don't know everything. We haven't experienced everything. I mean, even the Holy Spirit who's given to indwell us and who guides us and comforts us and is with us at all times is said only to be a down payment. In other words, there's more to come. The presence of God that we know in the experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit is only a down payment. It's only a taste of what is to come when we are actually in the presence of God. And so like Abraham, we are called to live by faith and also to die in faith. And like Abraham, looking forward to the day when we will receive the promise in full. Abraham didn't receive it in this life. He received it in the life to come. And and that's a good reminder for the promises that are given to us in God, that the promises are, thankfully, they're not limited to this life. 
there, the, this life is so, it is so limited. It is so finite that the promises, the spiritual blessings, the, the, the riches, the, the glory, everything that's been promised to us in Christ is for the life to come when it will know no end. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a tremendous encouragement to us that it is not only that we will know fully who God is and be face to face with him, but that we will be fully known ourselves. And deep down, there is a longing that is never satisfied in this life to be fully known by another. Something that we don't ever get to experience to its full, to its, its, uh, to, to beyond the limit uh, in this life. And there's a day for believers coming when we will not only know God face to face, but we will be known by Him, fully known. And so hear these words of the hope of the resurrection that is ours in Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that we would know this great hope. That in a time where, again, there's more questions than answers right now for so many of us, that we would know Christ is our hope. And that our lives are held firmly, securely by you that nothing can thwart your plan and that your plan, as we've seen it succeed over and over again through Genesis, against all odds, that your plan will continue and will come to completion. And so, Lord, we long for the day when we see that, when our faith is made sight and we stand before you, knowing you fully and also being fully known by you. Satisfy our hearts, God. Our hearts are so fickle. We're so easily led astray to love and want other things. Lord, draw us back to you again and again and again to see you alone are the all-satisfying one. And you alone are where we can find true contentment. Would you bless us with true contentment in Jesus? We pray this in his great name. Amen.